your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me for the first time this season is my good buddy, Jack Hahn. Jack, what's going on, man? Happy to be back. We got lots to talk about. We do. We're reunited. It feels so good. Uh, it's not quite the last times we had you on was, I think, our bread and butter right during like playoff series where we can really just sink our teeth into specific X's and O's and tactical adjustments and stuff like that. We don't really have that going right now. But in this first month of the season, I know you and I have both been just uh, consuming as much hockey as we can, trying to see what teams are doing differently, um, what's going on around the league. And so I thought it'd be good to have you on to kind of do a bit of a checkup on that and talk about maybe some interesting or surprising uh, early season performances and kind of what we're seeing from those teams. Do you want to start talking about the Ducks? Yeah, so very big surprise for me because coming into the season, I wasn't really expecting the Ducks to be uh, a team that's quite interesting to, to, to watch, even though I do enjoy watching Zegris and I think Jamie Drysdale has got some potential, but uh, really surprising and and one player that I think we're both going to really love just kind of came out of nowhere. Yes. Oh, that's a good, uh, good teaser right there. Well, before we get into that player, um, they're coming off a game last night against the Coyotes, which was for my money, one of the most just pure fun games of the season so far in the early going. It was delightful. It was spirited. Uh, it was fun. I'm not sure if it was necessarily meaningful in terms of the grand scheme of the league and and our future sort of determination of what's going to matter with these teams, but it was a 4-3 overtime win. Uh, brilliant play at the end by Mason McTavish to win it. And with the Ducks, um, you can already see significant, tangible improvements from them. You kind of mentioned your expectations for them, and it's understandable after how they hurt us last year where they were an absolute abomination, especially defensively, right? They were like, by any measure the worst defensive team we've seen in the analytics era over the past decade plus. And so far this year, um, despite having a really young team, I believe they have eight guys who were born in the 2000s on their opening day lineup. They've cut down their shots against by about 10 per game. Uh, their expected goals against per hour has been sliced down by nearly an hour uh, so far, uh, or sorry, one per hour, per hour so far. And so, it's it's a very encouraging performance. I'm not sure like, you know, what our expectations should be for them for the rest of the year, but they're playing something actually resembling NHL hockey now as a team. And they're also doing it in a fun way where young players are still being featured prominently, right? This isn't just like a group of veterans trying to be respectable. This is a really fun young team that's playing the right way so far. And I think that should be really encouraging moving forward. Yeah, and and you mentioned all these defensive stats from last from last year's team, and and obviously I, I've kind of uh, came up in hockey, kind of more on the stat side of things, but also now uh, doing more qualitative analysis. And, and and I think something that lots of maybe more casual fans they don't quite see is that when you look at these defensive stats as measured by Corsi or expected goals, a lot of times the teams that are quote unquote really bad defensively are actually uh, that bad because they're not doing anything productive with the puck. So mm. they don't get the puck back. They don't get any ozone time and they're just defending the whole game. Right. And whereas like the teams, which are actually bad defensively, they, they may be a little bit better in these shot based stats, but they're just giving up uh, lots of rush goals or like those teams tend to get PDO'd. Um, Whereas the teams which are really horrible offensively, just they they don't even get the puck to begin with. Yeah, 
Well, I can tell you, having watched my fair share of Ducks last year, they checked all those boxes. They were bad at everything, but uh, they were certainly struggled. I see what you mean in terms of just pure zone time, and it's been better so far this year, and it certainly helps that Lucas Dostal has like a 920 save percentage so far and looks really good as well as part of that young nucleus. But let's talk about Pavel Menchikov here because I think no player on this team, while there's certainly like a laundry list of guys we could talk about, I think no one better represents and personifies what we're talking about here than him because his inclusion into this lineup has all of a sudden both statistically paid dividends, but also when you watch them play uh, more qualitatively, you can see the impact he's having right out of the gate. And I think that's just, I mean, that's so impressive for not only a teenager, right? I believe he's still 19 for another couple of weeks, but one who has zero pro experience as well, right? He's pretty much only played junior hockey first in Russia and then in the OHL coming over. And so with zero pro experience under his belt, he makes that jump this year. And in his first 10 games, he's, showed me pretty much everything I would ever want to see from a young defenseman. Yeah, second it. I mean, you know, all the things that we talk about defensemen doing, whether it's activation, whether it's, you know, attacking the middle of the ice, whether it's uh, defending skating forward, uh, killing rushes early, like he checks all the boxes, as you said. Um, I mean, obviously just 10 games is such a tiny sample size, like 10 pro games. It doesn't even matter that they're NHL, just 10 pro games is a tiny sample size. Um, and, and obviously he is 19 years old, but I mean, you know, there, there aren't more than a handful of defensemen in the past, I would say decade who's, who's had a better 10 game stint as a pro at 19. It, it just hasn't happened. Yeah. I mean, let's break it down. So the physical ability, I think that certainly jumps off the page. You see last night, um, I just, he's, he, he's built like a tank, like when he hits you. It is guys are just flying off of him. Like it's he's so not necessarily like the biggest player, but he's just like so compact and strong already. Like he just like cleanly separated Matt Dumba off the rush, off the puck, and then brought it back the other way. And they wind up scoring a goal. Uh earlier last week, I was watching it against the Penguins, and Chris Letang makes the uh the fatal mistake of 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 bumping into him, and he just like immediately disintegrated into dust like it was like he just couldn't handle the the force that was Pavel Minchikov hitting him and that's amazing the fact that he's already just like hitting like a train like that and also doing it in a functional way where there's it's causing possession changes but you factor that in with the instincts you mentioned where he's already playing in a way that shows like a keen understanding of it seems like he knows where he needs to go at all times and how to do so, right? Like whenever you look up, he's in the right place and he's also always around the puck. And generally it takes young players, especially playing this position, a certain amount of time to to figure that out at this level. The game's so fast. It's unlike anything they've experienced before. And you see them make mistakes. You see them play very conservatively. And there's really been none of that so far. I'm not sure how much of that credit should go to Minchikov. I'm sure a lot of it, how much of it should go to this coaching staff and Greg Conan. Cause I'm not sure this could have been the case last year. And, and, you know, before the season, I was listening to a podcast with him and he was talking a very good game in terms of letting these young defensemen along with, you know, a and Minchikov, but also Zellweger down the road sort of play a more modern style and be able to kind of roam the ice and, and play in unconventional areas of it. And so far, so good. We've seen that. And so maybe it's a combination of the two where they're letting him do that thing. And then he's uniquely equipped to actually play that way. 
Yeah, and and I think in the next uh, weeks, a month, a years, I think hopefully we're gonna hear a lot more of uh, Mintikov as a player and, and how he's developing. But the thing that really baffles me uh, is so I pulled up his elite prospect page, and and this is a player who uh, I I didn't I never scouted before. You know that that was after my time in the NHL, and uh, so I didn't know much about his kind of pre-draft history. And what I saw was really baffling because, uh, as you said, he never played any pro games in Russia before coming over to the OHL. And then he, the only kind of, I would say, high-level junior that he played in Russia was in the MHL, which is a Russian kind of the major junior league over there. In 33 games um, back in, a, in his uh, draft, I guess, minus two year, he, he played 33 games. He had one goal, two assists for three points, which is – it's terrible production in any league, but especially in a league that's as weak as a Russian junior league. Like, like, I don't know what happened. Like, I would love to sit down with whether it's him, his agent, maybe his dad, or, you know, somebody who was instrumental in his development and ask him just like, what the hell happened between 2019 and, you know, 2021? Because on top of having a really, I would say, forgettable 2019-20 season, the following year, he didn't play a single game because of COVID. So I, I guess he, he's listed as a member of Saginaw in the OHL, but he didn't, he didn't play in, in a single game. And then mm -hmm. after that, um, in his draft year, he puts up nearly point a game, which is obviously very good. And then in his draft plus one, uh, he was over a point a game, which again is very good. But, uh, you, you know, you, uh, you, you can still not really trust that for a defenseman because, as you said, like he's maybe a unicorn in terms of having the physical ability as well, the, the physical uh, strength and the speed. Um, but really, you know, he sure he's had a good North American junior career, a, a really, I would say, mediocre Russian one. But how has that player become now one of the most kind of one of the best teenagers in, in the world? Well, whatever that change was, it was clearly a foundational way. I know that anyone that scouted him closely during the pre-draft process while he was playing in the OHL absolutely fell in love with his game, right? Like, I believe, especially when he was on Saginaw, that team wasn't particularly good, but they were playing this very unique, modern style in terms of, like, heavy possession, never really giving away the puck unless you have to, allowing their defensemen to, to really activate in the offensive zone and kind of work that middle of the ice with that funnel and he was just dominating in that regard. And you mentioned the points. That's one thing. He also scored 17 and 24 goals in his two AHL seasons. And I know typically like goal scoring for a defenseman can be very fleeting. And I didn't think a particular defenseman who can meaningfully drive offensive results are few and far between, right? Like we see defensemen, especially in today's game in the NHL, put up big point totals. But generally, a lot of that is situation-based, right? Like if you're out on the ice on the top unit power play, you're going to rack up a ton of secondary assists, which not necessarily might not be indicative of anything you're doing particularly well. It might just be, a, oh, you're on the ice with good players. You touch the puck, you're going to get points. And in this case, I think we generally um, probably don't give enough credit to like how difficult it is to drive offensive results as a defenseman in, in the NHL game. And now like this is a, a teenager with 10 games. Let's not get too carried away. But based on what we know from him, from everyone that watched them in Major Junior and what we're seeing now, I can see why you would connect those dots with him, right? Like, if you just watch him off the puck from the defensive zone, when the lane is there, he's so good at just sprinting up the ice and joining joining the rush, 
that first goal he scored against the Canes, the four on four play with him and Jackson Lacombe out there was like, that's such a high offensive IQ play for a defenseman to just be involved there, especially right out of the gate to start your career and, and jump in on that play and then be able to execute it. And so I can't wait to keep watching more because if this is just a sign of things to come, then then the future just is incredibly bright for both him and the Ducks. Yeah, and again, just going back to the fact that he's Russian. Like in Russia, the way that defensemen are told to play traditionally is you get the puck, you give it to a forward, uh, and then you wait and you play a trap. And, and, and that's really not conducive to developing top-end defensemen. Like, you know, since uh, the end of the Soviet Union, there's probably a handful of defensemen who are really kind of all-stars um, coming out of Russia, like, you know, uh, Zubov, Gonchar. But there there hasn't really been many. You know, right now in the NHL, uh, Orlov and Sergachev are probably two best ones. And, you know, I would arguably take Mintikov above them, like, right now. So it, it'll be really exciting to see where he goes from here. Yeah, certainly not a huge track record, especially recently, of producing star defensemen i think there's I, I looked it up there's like 13 active nhl defensemen who are from russia in today's game um yeah with him on the ice so far and they're using him kind of as like a second pair of guy right 53 percent shot share 55 percent high danger chance share positive goal differential and then and he's playing with labushkin and they're not really um you know they're not giving him the tough assignments but they're certainly not sheltering them territorially either and so i was looking this up i mean this is such a loaded rookie class right and i think for young defensemen especially ones who aren't like the number one guy playing 25 minutes or so a game it's just really tough to to garner enough attention to actually win the award and especially in in a year where we have guys like bedard and cooley who are going to put up big point totals and do so in such a flashy way it might just be a bit of a sucker's bet but you can still get them at like 25 to 40 to one or so for uh for the calder and so that would be a fun one to uh to get in on just to just to follow it this season because obviously i think especially playing in these late games right it was like the only game on at some point last night and for the people who were actually staying up and watching it i'm pretty sure everyone was not only marveling at what he was doing but also just like enjoying the full experience and they're like wow i, I want to watch more of this so uh so i just wanted to give that a bit of a shout out there yeah i mean it's uh all of a sudden, it's exciting. Yeah. Um, okay. Any other notes on Minchikov or the Ducks, or uh, or do you want to move on? No, let's let's move on. We got quite a loaded uh, okay. menu. Well, on a less positive note, I got Oilers next on my list. Now, I had Kevin Woodley on recently, and uh, I'm not sure if you heard, but he was giving you a lot of love because uh, you did a Twitter thread kind of breaking down some of the conversation about their defensive issues in their own zone and how a lot of it has been sort of unfairly or, or, um, or mistakenly attributed to this new, um, new system they're running the Vegas system, right? The box and water, the zone defense, which, uh, has become, become the, the trendy topic for everyone to kind of shout out as the buzzword. Um, obviously, regardless of your mileage on what this team's outlook was like heading into the year as a Stanley cup contender, the fact that they're two five and one with like a minus ten goal differential is clearly unacceptable and and not um not okay for for a team that has as much talent as they do. I know McDavid missed a few games, but still, um, let's talk a little bit about them and kind of how we break down the fact that they're giving up four goals a game and what's the cause for that. And some of the kind of deeper underlying issues that are that are present on tape. 
man like like i just like i watched him play and obviously the d zone thing gets a fair bit of attention the goaltending gets a fair bit of attention but like i'm not really loving their play with the puck either yeah um what would you guess the rush goals are this year in their games in terms of how many they've scored and how many of their defense their uh, opponents have scored in eight games i don't know like like th three to ten something like that or, or so something along those 14 to four off the rush um and i'm classifying that as basically any goal that came within like a couple of seconds of a carry in uh it's that's pretty bleak now obviously just purely looking at goals can not necessarily always give you the most accurate picture because there's a bunch of stuff that precedes it and if the goalie makes a save and you move the puck the other way we don't really focus on it as much so just purely identifying these like outlier events is is one thing but i think that's kind of a clear sign right for all the talk about this zone defense they're running and kind of how they're playing it's like if you're just constantly bleeding these types of rush chances against that's going to kill you, especially when your goalies can't necessarily bail you out time and time again. So I don't know. I don't know how much of that is attributed to to all of the other stuff, how much of it is personnel-based, but this isn't the way things looked previously under Woodcroft, right? Like this is a bit of an aberration. And so maybe we thought too highly of them as as a rush team um, heading into the season. You know, I, I was listening to like, a, I think it was Evander Kane on, on a 32 Thoughts podcast, and he was talking about how people for whatever reason think the Oilers are are like one of the best rush teams in the league, but then playing against Vegas last year really sort of put into perspective, like how good the golden Knights are in transition. And, and they're just in a significantly different tier than the Oilers are as a team. And that's like clearly the case here, right? Because I mean, they're just getting absolutely walloped, walloped off the rush and that's a much bigger issue for me than anything in zone. Yeah, and and I I don't think it would be in the Oilers' best interest to copy what Vegas is doing because what basically why Vegas is so good off the rush is you know they do defend well in zone. They got some defensemen who can fire some stretch passes, and, and in theater in Shea Theodore's case, he can jump in the rush as well. But they they got really good at bypassing uh, teams kind of along the boards and then just kind of. Uh, the, you know, it's almost like if you're playing uh, EA Sports online, like you're you're just spamming the speed boost button down the board, and then you're you're taking it straight to the net. So, you know, like like Vegas's strength is more on the wings, whereas I think Edmonton would be better served playing more in the middle of the ice and getting those middle entries. And um, you know, you know for sure, at, like Evan Bouchard's already one of the best at kind of flinging those like long two line passes, but but I. Like, I see why they would want to copy what Vegas has done. I just don't think they have the same personnel. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 certainly an issue. And I think Vegas was, whenever someone wins the way they do, and it's like as as dominant and methodical as it was, I think people are going to obviously take note and, and try to replicate it. But it was, I mean, it was a unique combination of, of personnel and also coaching, right? Because they clearly made changes last year when Bruce, Bruce Cassidy came in, they, they went, from more of a volume team, both offensively and defensively, in terms of controlling position that way to really dominating in high quality areas. And we saw that throughout the postseason and, and it paid dividends for them. And so uh, I'm I'm all for trying to replicate that side of things, but just in specifically in terms of the way they're playing, I think it's going to lead teams astray, right? Because there's so much more to it than just pack the front of your net and and don't let teams score from from these high danger areas like 
it's it sounds good in theory, but it's really difficult to execute unless you have the right type of players. Yeah, and 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 the thing that I that I don't like about uh, this whole Oilers discourse is like the the D zone is just a red herring, basically. Yes, like yes, they've made changes. Yes, it hasn't looked great in spots, but really, the 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 more pressing issues are up ice. Well, how do you so okay? So what are the what are the fixes then? Like let's say they let's say they're bringing you in and they're like, okay, we cannot keep afford to keep playing this way and and being two five and one. We need to change things. This is a, a do or die year for us based on the contract status and age of our two best players and how much how committed we are to it. Like what do we what do you do in season to fix it and get back to playing the way you did last year? Well, the the first thing is finding ways to safely get the puck into the middle of the ice uh in the neutral zone. Because if you get the puck in the middle of the ice, like that sounds risky, right? But what happens is if you turn that puck over, where's the puck gonna go? Well, the only place the puck is gonna go is toward either the boards on one side or the boards on the other. So actually, if you turn the puck over in the middle and it's in the neutral zone, uh, you have some time and space to actually force that play wide. The thing that that I've seen the Oilers do when I watched them, which is, you know, admittedly not every single game is they would try to get the puck wide like Vegas likes to do. Uh, they would maybe get through the neutral zone or, or at least get to the red line, and then they would just completely run out of options. Like, they can't carry it in. They got two bodies, like, kind of in their way. They can't even chip it in because the D is just going to stand there and block that that entry attempt. So, you know, what, what are you going to do? Well, now the puck gets turned over, and as soon as the puck gets turned over, Edmonton gets really passive because that's what their system is they play a one one three in the neutral zone which is you know three guys back and passive and then they play a box plus one uh and the way that they play it has been more on the passive end so they're just kind of submitting themselves to the other team whereas if they get the puck in the middle at least even when you have to dump it in you you've got more options and your success rate is going to be higher yeah no i well and so like what what's the logic behind playing that way in terms of especially in the defensive zone and, and sort of this this change is it's it seems like beyond just obviously the success Vegas had and kind of limiting those chances I think part of it is also like trying to conserve energy right it seems like this is probably less physically taxing but maybe that's why it's also been so passive and why it's leading to so many other issues down the line yeah and and this this box plus one and especially the way that Edmonton plays it like they're really quite passive. Okay, mm-hmm. so th- there are two reasons why you want to play a, a box plus one or, or a zone defense. The one is you're playing against teams that are not good with the puck. So you know, I I've coached women's hockey for a long time, and and I've you know I've worked with minor hockey players. I coached minor hockey way back when, and the teams that played a box plus one in a really diligent way, they did well because at the younger levels or in in women's hockey. Um, there's less speed, less strength, a little bit less skill, depending on what leagues are talking about. And teams aren't really good at creating offense from just inside the ozone, right? Like everybody can score off the rush, but not everybody can really string those plays together. So if you play against the box plus one, they're counting on you to spam bad shots into shin pads. They're counting on you to make high turnovers. They're counting on you to sort of mindlessly skate yourself into a corner and, and then you get you get jumped, right? Uh, doesn't work as well in the NHL wh- where every single player essentially has the ability to make plays uh, in zone. 
The mm-hmm. other reason why you would play a zone defense, which I think is the reason why most NHL teams uh, would use it, is because you're not playing man-on-man, you're either playing kind of pretty passive and you're allowing the puck carrier some space, or you can kind of then reorganize uh, and, and marshal your, your forces to create a two-on-one somewhere. And, and I think that's the best reason to play a zone uh, in the NHL. And the only thing with, with Edmonton is that they haven't really been good at those trigger points. So a trigger point is the moments or the places in which you would attack two-on-one. So a good example is if it's a wide entry, you're looking to attack two-on-one. If the puck is uh, along the boards, and especially if the puck carrier's got his head down, you're attacking, you're pressuring two-on-one. If the puck is down low in the corner, you're going two-on-one. And the thing with the Oilers is we're not seeing those two-on-one kind of surges of pressure that you would see from Vegas or you know whoever else is good in in a box plus one. Yeah, well, I think what it's what it's also exposed a little bit, and maybe this ties into your point about how you know Vegas is just uniquely equipped to to dominate that way. Like the wing talent on this team just isn't really very good at this point, considering how much money they've spent on it and the fact that you'd think, okay, well, we have McDavid and Dreisaitl down the middle. We should be able to find players who can play with them and, and look good enough on their wings. Unfortunately, for the most part, aside from a few exceptions, like there's not really actually that much high-end wing talent, but also like in a dynamic sense as well to to be very active and win a lot of those battles you're talking about. Yeah, I, I, I find it especially ironic that it would be Evander Kane talking about this team's struggles mm. because and anyway you you know where i'm going with this well yeah it, it is interesting right so they've scored what 22 goals in eight games that's uh you know you don't have to be good at analytics though that's less than three per game and i believe their set sport logic has them at 17th in rush chances created and so despite mcdavid winning missing a few of those games that's for a team that's thought to be so good offensively and then all the conversation is about oh they're you know, they're struggling defensively and that's why they're losing. You're right. Like a lot of the conversation probably should be shifted the other way. And maybe the two things are intertwined to some degree, but um, maybe this wouldn't be as big of an issue if, if they were just creating more up ice themselves. So uh, there's some food for thought. All right, Jack, let's uh, let's take a quick break here. And then when we come back, we'll pick the conversation back up. You're listening to the hockey PDO cast streaming on the sports radio network. All right, we're back here on the Hockey PDO cast joined by Jack Hahn. Jack, we talked about uh, Minchikov and the surprising Ducks up top on a positive note, and then uh, and then the Oilers on a more negative note before the break. We'll do uh, one of each here uh, in the second half of the show as well. Let's start on a on a positive note. Let's talk about the Natural Predators, who uh, by any any time you see one of these charts or uh, or or stats dumps of like how teams are performing early in the season, acknowledging that it has been 10 or fewer games for all these teams they're near the top and even when they were winning towards the end of last year you know they were sellers at the deadline but they made a spirited push for a wild card spot near the end and fell just short it was pretty much entirely just uc sorrows being one of if not the best goalies in the world and then this kind of ragtag group of young players in the ahl call-ups uh piecing together enough but getting absolutely mashed at 515 and so far this year it's been the opposite and i thought why they'd be an interesting topic for us here is not only did they make one of the biggest coaching changes in the offseason going from john hines to andrew brunette but also they made quite a few personnel changes now we luke shen got injured we haven't seen much of him 
but they brought in Ryan O'Reilly. They brought in a couple wingers. They they totally revamped this roster, and the early returns on it are are phenomenal. They've been by any measure one of the best five on five teams in the league. So we we were talking about the Oilers D zone coverage and. The, the one thing I'm seeing with Nashville is that they're actually surprisingly good at creating offense uh, out of that same box plus one by forcing turnovers high uh, in their defensive zone. And this is something that I remember seeing back when Brunette was the head coach of the Florida Panthers. Uh, they played his own defense as well. And it, it was really surprising to me uh, how much poise their wingers had once they got the puck. So the, the thing is, is a, a lot of times like you would have a winger that gets the puck maybe behind the zone, but they're sort of flat footed and there's not really any clear options because there's nobody really in front of them or nobody open. And uh, j- just the, the next time you watch an NHL game, just notice how many times a winger um, who's flat footed and who gets the puck just throws it away. Like instead of taking three or four hard strides and getting going and seeing what he's had, what, what he has after he just sort of makes a soft chip into the neutral zone and then runs after the puck because it feels safer. And the thing that I see with Brunette's team this year, but also with you know the Panthers that were such juggernauts, uh, what is it, two seasons ago, is that their wingers are actually really good at going from zero to 60. And then uh, what they find is oftentimes they build up speed. All of a sudden, they, they're at the red line. They've got options. They can either dump it in or carry it in. Um and, and I think that's the biggest change from uh, Nashville uh, this season versus last season. And I think early, you know, the most recent game they played, I watched that one closely against the Canucks and they wound up losing that game 5-2, I believe. Um, but after the game, I don't think it was an accident that like Rick Tockett's presser, he was basically talking about how despite the win, he didn't like the way his team had played and it wasn't like, the, you know, something that they want a, a repeat of. And part of it was early in the game. I feel like the Canucks were a bit caught off guard by how aggressively the Predators were playing exactly that way, right? Like the Canucks were almost getting caught a bit too deep in the offensive zone and the Predators were very quick to turn the puck up the ice and create uh, good looks in transition that way. And so despite not necessarily having a, a who's who in terms of like household names in some of these forward positions, just you can see the coaching impact in terms of how sort of they're pushing the envelope, I guess, and trying to ramp up and ratchet up the tempo. And, and it's clearly paying dividends for them so far. So, you know, I I have this professional curiosity to try to understand what NHL coaches uh, do with their teams and, and what they say in their meetings. But I think if I were to pick one team, I, I would want to sit in on Brunette's meetings with this team more than anybody else this season, just because from watching his teams play over the years, it seems like he's the type of coach who, who says less than more. Like, you know, the reason why so many wingers across the league, they would just kind of punt that puck and run after it is because they know that if they turn it over, if they get caught from behind and then they turn the puck over, uh, they're going to get yelled at, or they're going to get benched, or they're going to get, you know, some sort of punishment. Whereas, I just feel like with, with certain players, like the best way to get them to make more plays is just to shut up when things don't go well, right? Well, uh, the reason why I was curious to see how this would sh- shake out for a variety of reasons, but most importantly, he got a lot of credit in his earlier stints 
but it was also on a pretty loaded Panthers team in terms of offensive talent, certainly. And then being an assistant on that Devils team last year where it was like, all right, well, the personnel here is pretty good, right? So while I, I'm, I'm sure he's doing things that, whether it is the messaging or, or or how he's communicating or this sort of just the theory he's trying to impart on them, I'm sure that's all well and good. But if you don't have the horses and personnel, you can try playing that way, but it probably won't yield the same results. And now they're not necessarily dominating from a goals perspective in that way, but like every underlying metric that you'd want to see looks really darn good so far. And I, I think they've been pretty impressive. So um, they have a 57% expected goal share five on five, which is just, I mean, it is eight or nine games, but man, that's uh, that's something that I wasn't even after this small of a sample expecting to see the Predators doing. So uh, kudos to, to everyone involved. Well, I, I mean, it depends what stats you look at. Because if you just look at Corsi, I think they're below 50. They're like 48 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, they're, like they're 17th in attempts, 16th in shots on goal share, but then they're fifth in high danger and third in expected goals. And Logic has them generating most notably 11 scoring chances off the cycle per game, which is fourth in the league behind the Leafs, Panthers, and Canucks. Okay. So so some some weird stuff going on there. Like I, I would love to uh look back in 20 games to, to to see what's real and and maybe what wasn't. I mean a lot of it is being driven by just outlandish defensive inputs. Like F five on five uh 1.72 goals for per 60, 1.58 goals against per 60 as a team. That's 3.3 combined goals per game at 5 on 5 in Predators games, right? The Kings are at 7.1 so far this year. I mean, I certainly wouldn't expect that to continue, although obviously their goaltending is quite good with with Soros and Lankinen, but maybe it is what you're mentioning in terms of the aggressiveness in the defensive zone and, and flipping the ice and then being able to keep the puck in the offensive zone and cycle it and create chances off that way like that. It makes sense that that would yield good defensive results if if that is actually a way you can keep playing. Uh, with this personnel, I'm not sure if you can, but I wanted to shout out Tommy Novak as well here. One of the more unheralded names, but as a 26-year-old, right, got his chance last year, finally produced phenomenally well down the stretch. I think he finished with 17 goals in 51 games. He's already got four and nine, and his his underlying 5-1-5 numbers playing with Luke Evangelista and Kiefer Sherwood are just in a different stratosphere. Like high danger chances in his 5-1-5 minutes are 20 to 6. For the Predators, <laughs> six high danger chances against all season. It's uh, yeah, maybe that'll that'll warrant a deep dive and a and a full film study of what Tommy Novak and the Predators are doing, especially along the boards. Yeah, again, I I, I like to see in twenty games whether uh, what whether that's that's still the case where it's evaporated. Well, let's have some fun with small samples, Jack. I mean, it doesn't make for great content. Being like, you know what? We have to wait a couple months to find out. Let's uh, let's have some fun and. Certainly, at least it's a good story early on. Uh, Results that are less favorable, but maybe the process looks even better, is the Pittsburgh Penguins. And I know you wrote about them recently, so let's talk about them a little bit because they started off here three and six record, right? And after the offseason, they had the changes they made, the Eric Carlson trade, how much money they spent revamping this roster. I think expectations were pretty high for them, especially in the short term of the season. And uh, while there's certainly encouraging underlying metrics to look at both at five on five and on the power play, the results clearly haven't been here. And and with the, I think, I think the oldest team in the league, like I understand why people would start to become wary. And also, you know, the, 
the patience meter wouldn't necessarily be uh, as long because you don't really have that much time to waste here. Yeah. So yes, the oldest team in the league. And the the most disturbing part of that is if you took the, the, the gap between the Penguins and the second oldest team, that that same gap takes you from number two to like number 16. Like they're not just the oldest team. They're like, they might be the oldest NHL team in recent memory. Like, yeah, like the, this team is, is, is old. The Penguins average age is, uh, don't check this math, but old enough to be fathers of the average age of the Anaheim Ducks. Well, well, that that would be a, another really disturbing thought if you took <laughs> things uh, at face level. Yeah. Um, okay. So what are what are we seeing here with them? We can talk both at five on five and on the power play because both have gotten equal amounts of blame and attention. Kind of. Uh, let's talk about what you're seeing here and kind of what to expect from them over the next couple of weeks. Okay. So j- just a quick thing on the power play because I I didn't write about the power play. I think they they'll sort it out. They I think they're running at about eleven expected goals per hour, which is elite. Um, the actual goals should follow if you've got this group of finishers and setting up in his own as often as they are, I think they'll be fine. Like if we think back to when they lost, uh, against, I think it was, it was the ducks, right? Like mm-hmm. when they, they, they had that, uh, player come out of the box and then score on them with like 14 seconds less. Well, uh, Malkin scored early in the game on a power play. I, it was a one-timer, uh, from kind of like the right point. Uh, and then in that last sequence, Carlson feeds Malkin. Malkin hits the post. Carlson tries the exact same pass. The puck gets ticked, and then Anaheim goes down and scores. So, you know, b- basically, it's like they're they're nine tenths the way there. Like they're in the zone, they're set up, um, they're getting their looks. Uh, the right people have the puck. It's just maybe a, a matter of being a little bit smarter situationally, being a little bit more lucky, and 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 just figuring things things out. But you know, they're basically on the power play, at least like, like they're going to be fine. Yeah. They're first in expected goals and 20th in actual goals. So that's a, a pretty good sign. They scored the two power play goals against the ducks. You mentioned Carlson had one earlier as well on a, off a pass from Malkin. Um, but yeah, the, the most recent viewing of it was that failed five one three, which wound up being a, a catastrophic goal against uh, in the waning seconds there. So yeah, I'm not too worried about the power play, right? The personnel, there's enough firepower there and makes sense. They'd be better. I guess, the one complaint I've seen and, and, and just watching them, like it does also seem like, and maybe this extends to the five on five as well. There's, there's not as much like urgency, I guess, or, or decisiveness as you'd ideally like to see considering the names involved. Like, and it's very bizarre for a Mike Sullivan team because you, you'd expect there to be much more precision and pace. And maybe this is a good segue into the five on five, but, um, I think there are some concerns there, despite the fact that a lot of the the shares that you look at are pretty encouraging. Yeah, so the the underlying stats, the expected stats, they all look really good. Uh, but at some point, it's time to win some some effing games, right? And and, and I think for the Penguins, uh, perhaps it will help to have a bit of a rethink. Uh, the the thing is, what the NHL is, even when your coach doesn't change, even in when your players don't change, your, your players are actually always changing just because of how competitive the NHL is, how steep the aging curve is past a certain point. And what, what I'm seeing is the Penguins are still playing the way that they did back when they won the two consecutive Stanley Cups, mm-hmm. except the same 
a lot of the same names are still around and and you know those players are not the same players like they're slower um they're they're slower to recover physically they you know because now they're physically overwhelmed now they start making mental mistakes and the way that they defend the rush specifically is putting a lot of stress and you know whether it's their older players whether it's their younger more more inexperienced players like they're they're getting burned in one-on-one situations off the rush, like there's no tomorrow. And it doesn't matter if you have, you know, a 55% expected goal share, uh, you're still, you know, the other team still has 45%. And if you're allowing them to hurt you off the, off of these rush chances or those, what I call rush plus one. So within, let's say the next 10 seconds, you're not really set. They're walking, you know, down main street. Um, of course the shares are going to be good, but you're going to get outscored. Like most goals in hockey come off the rush. So, if you're giving up quality and quantity off the rush, it's time to rethink whatever you're doing. I just think ultimately it's very difficult to win games when you get as little from your bottom six as they do. I know that like recently um, Ellers played better with Zahorna and, and O'Connor and they're getting a little bit from them, but the fourth line and and, and listen, I, I understand like, they're not they didn't get brought in and they're not being paid to score goals right that's what the top players do they're playing very extreme defensive deployment and it's like they're just hoping to hang on in those minutes so that they can get the the top guys out there again but when you're getting like literally nothing in terms of in the way of 515 scoring your margin for error shrinks quite a bit right because that means that your best case absolute best case scenario is you come out of those minutes at a net neutral and you're even and that's good because your top players will probably win their minutes. And if that carries over every single game, you're going to win more games than not. But there's going to be times where the puck doesn't bounce your way or whatever. And the top guys get outscored. And then all of a sudden it's like, all right, we have nothing to fall back on because they've literally gotten zero goals and approaching 105 on five minutes now from that Jeff Carter, Matt Nieto, Nolachari line. And so that's like, it's just really tough in today's game when you look at some other teams and particularly the good ones and they all have guys on their fourth line who can play and create in their limited usage, right? Like you watch a team like the Kings and, and they're one of my favorite teams to watch. Cause it's like, all right, our four lines going to go out there. Well, Blake Lazard is, will certainly be creating something. Carl Grunstrom, you know, Arthur Kaliab's probably playing on their fourth line when they're fully healthy. Like it's just incomparable to what a team like the Penguins has the way they're constructed. And this was a massive issue for them last year. And Kyle Dubas came in and totally changed all of the names, but they're getting very similar results from them. And so that would be worrying to me because there's a lot on the plate of the top six and they're performing well, but they're all getting pretty long in the tooth and it's just unfair to expect them to keep dominating the way they need to. Yeah. And, and, and this is a situation where it would really help if you had one or two or three AHL call-ups, you know, preferably on the younger side who can just call up and at least try in the lineup. Well, they theoretically do like that was their approach in terms of adding serviceable depth this offseason, right? Like they've already called up Zahorna because Jansen Harkins didn't work. They brought in what Vinny Hastroza and Colin White. Like there's theoretically names, but they're just for whatever reason for the second straight year getting absolutely nothing from them. They have 18 515 goals from the top six and three from the bottom six. Like it's that is about as bleak of a divide as you're gonna see in the league. So that's concerning. And then they spend a lot of money on Tristan Jari and we've seen the highs and lows. And I think that's while that's true for most goalies. I think the contract, the time they signed it was pretty unconscionable. And, you know, based on everything we've seen so far, maybe uh, maybe Kyle shouldn't make any big goalie decisions. 
That's uh, not that any of us are very good at evaluating goalies, but that was also tough. And and when he plays, like they're I think they're twenty fifth in team save percentage. So, yeah, you're right. If you can control fifty five percent of the share, but if the forty five going the other way are difficult ones off the rush, and your goaltending isn't to be trusted and isn't reliable, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to come out ahead. The the main takeaway for me is you know your your goalie situation can change in a hurry, just like look at Vegas last year, your mm-hmm. bottom six situation can change in a hurry. But the thing that can't really change in a hurry is the top of your lineup. And I just wonder, regardless of how well the pens perform, whether it's, you know, an actual goals and wins or expected goals and wins, uh, can their top players actually survive 82 games of this sort of death march and then get to the playoffs and be effective once they get there? Like, it doesn't matter if they finish first in, a, in their division. It doesn't matter if they're the second wild card. Um, you know, it, it's more like how healthy and how energetic is this team on day one, the playoffs, if they get there. Yeah. Yeah, and telling 36 and 37-year-olds that they like literally cannot afford to take any nights off is uh, is not great but that's the position they've kind of boxed themselves into. So it will be interesting to watch. All right. Parting thoughts time. What do you, what are you watching? What's got your eye? What are you interested in? What are you going to be writing about next? Um, as we get into November here, what, uh, what's on kind of what's on the agenda, what's on the docket, what are you interested in? Okay. So, uh, tonight is Toronto versus Boston. So I, obviously I, I have a continued interest in the Maple Leafs, but the thing, the funniest thing this year is, Ibushi took the most outdated power play scheme, which is a 3-2 spread, and he's made it work really well. But then uh, they're kind of the opposite of Pittsburgh power play right now, which is they're, they're getting a good number of actual goals, but they're not getting a lot of expected goals because in that formation, it takes a while to set up, and that really dings you on kind of any weight stat. And also Boston plays a, a pretty old school, like, uh, box PK, so two players up top, two Ds uh, near the net, and that's sort of a natural antidote to the three-two spread. So I'm, I'm expecting Boston to make a game of this, even if they don't have McAvoy and Grizzlick. Uh, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, no, that's a, that's an interesting point about the power play. I mean, obviously they've been phenomenal so far, and and, and you know, in fact, kind of masking some of the the lack of five-on-five production. Um, but man, when when you've got like and you mentioned how long it takes to set up in times, but then you watch the Kings game and I know they lost it, but it takes a while, it takes a while. And then all of a sudden, if it's Willie Nylander getting a shot from a prime danger, danger location, it all of a sudden can escalate very quickly in terms of quality. Right. So, um, and he's been phenomenal this year. I think, it, you know, he clearly took his game to another level uh, in the postseason last year, particularly in that Panther series they lost. And this has just been a carryover. He's been playing absolutely possessed so far this year. That's what a good Alberta-born boy will do for you. <laughs> All right, Jack. Um, well, that's a good shout. I wanted to shout out the Kings. Like, we didn't have time here to talk about them, but uh, just before we started recording, I went back and watched that game against Leafs from the other night because it was a very quiet night on the NHL schedule on, on Halloween night, I believe, and uh, they're really fun to watch. Once they get up on you, it can be an absolutely miserable experience. I think towards the end of that second period, there was like a full two and a half minute stretch where they were just passing the puck around the zone and, and the Leafs couldn't even get out or, or retain possession. And from top to bottom, they play really fast. They're really good. They don't give up anything off the rush. They create a lot themselves. Like the Kings, if you're looking for a fun team to watch, they're they're really high up on my list. 
we we could do a deep dive on them like in June of 2024 because I think they'll still be playing hockey at that point. Mm. All right. All right. Well, that's a good shot. Hopefully we have a chance to talk about them uh, sooner than that, um, but I'm looking forward to it. All right. On the way out here, Jack, uh, I'll give you a chance to uh, to plug some stuff, let the listeners know uh, whatever you want them to check out. Okay. So the best way to keep up with what I'm working on is on my Substack. stack. Uh, it's Uh I, I may be one of the only kind of coaches working pro hockey to actually write stuff on a weekly basis and, and give you all that good stuff that you're not getting elsewhere. So sign up for that. Uh, there's a free version. There's a paid version with some extra goodies, uh, but do check it out. When's the next hockey tactics book coming out? Uh, working on it. It'll be out in 2024 as the name implies. Looking forward to it. Well, when it comes out, we will certainly be talking about it here on this show. Uh, good chat as always, Jack, you have the great work. We're going to have you on again soon. My plugs real quick here. If you enjoyed today's show, uh, go smash that five-star button wherever you listen. Uh, if you enjoyed this breakdown, I know we didn't really do any video, but we talked about a lot of stuff we're seeing on tape. I've been uh, experimenting with posting video breakdowns on the YouTube page. So just go search Hockeypedia cast on YouTube and sign up. I think we're over 2000 subscribers there now, and I'm really enjoying that side of things. So it's a nice little compliment to the podcast and we'll be back tomorrow with, uh, with some more content to close the week out. So until then, thank you for listening to the hockey PDO cast as always streaming on the Sportsnet radio network.